Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. It took me outside of the herd. It took me outside of ordinary society and ordinary people. And only by being outside of that circle of ideas and circle of behavior can you look back and see what you were doing while you were running with the herd. After being wrongly convicted of murder, Reuben Hurricane Carter begins a journey of self-reflection in prison. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. incarceration in New Jersey for a multiple homicide he did not commit. Reuben Carter emerged from prison in 1985 with an astounding attitude about life. A famous prize fighter on the outside, Carter suffered great loss behind bars. Not only more than 19 years of his life, he also lost his eye when a prison doctor botched a surgery. But as depicted in his memoir, Eye of the Hurricane, Carter somehow pushed aside the bitterness that had consumed him during much of his time as an inmate. He realized that wallowing in negativity gives a distorted view of the world, and he founded two organizations dedicated to the legal defense of other prisoners who were falsely accused. Because I saw through my own eyes how difficult it is to get people to listen to somebody who says they're innocent in prison or wrongly convicted. I saw how difficult it is for anybody to believe them. When I first went to prison, I said, I'm going to do two things in order to try to straighten this up. First, I became an expert in the criminal justice system. I'm, I'm an expert. I'm good at what I do. And secondly, I'm going to write a book in order to tell my story. And your first book was the result of that, the 16th round. The 16th round, yes. So I saw how difficult it is to get people to understand that. So I have all of this knowledge, all of this knowledge about criminal justice systems and, and, and wrongful convictions and all that kind of stuff. So I got to put this information out there. So, because, uh, I mean... Even with all of the high-profile people that I was able to generate around me, the Muhammad Ali's, the Bob Dylan's, the Ellen Burstyn's, the Diane Cannon's, you know, the Harry Belafonte's, all of these different people. Who, who came to your aid, who participated in benefits, exactly. who publicized your play. Exactly. Even with all of this high-profile help, I just narrowly escaped through the eye of a needle. Just narrowly escaped. And so I knew that most people aren't reviled as people were reviled about me. And that I got to put this information to work or I'm going to lose it. What is a, a broken down prize fighter? Because when I came out, you know, my eye was gone. I had lost my eye in prison. So I, so I certainly couldn't go back into the prize fighting ring. I mean, what better work could there be for a person who himself had been wrongly convicted other than defending 
innocent people. What better work could there be? And so, is it frustrating though? I mean, it's an uphill battle. You oh. you you are waging a long-term struggle well, with probably few and far between victories. You, you you got that right. But I've been but I've been lucky. I've been lucky. Uh, We've won the, the organizations that I've been involved with, and I'm involved with a whole lot of them. The organizations that I've been involved with have been very fortunate that we have won more than we've lost. But when we lose, we very well may lose a life. And we have done that. And it's an awesome responsibility. We, we see a case where we think and, 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 and know that this person had nothing to do with it based upon the cold record facts, based upon the evidence that we go through, based upon DNA, based upon all these things. Well, we're gonna, we'll go to the wall for that person. Reuben Carter was himself the beneficiary of die-hard supporters. A remarkable group of Canadians, convinced of Carter's innocence, relocated to New Jersey to research the case on his behalf. And a team of attorneys volunteering thousands of hours stuck by Carter, even amidst the heartbreaking string of legal defeats during his long journey to exoneration. From the 1999 film The Hurricane, about Reuben Carter's struggle. So, Your Honor, this case was poisoned from the start. No evidence, no witnesses, except admitted liars. Only a racially charged atmosphere, which was fanned by the police and the prosecutors, who knew the truth and distorted it and subverted it and destroyed it convict an innocent man. How grave a miscarriage of justice is imprisonment of someone for a crime they did not commit? Well, frankly, it's hard to think of anything worse. Federal Judge H. Lee Sarakin, now retired and living near San Diego. In 1985, he granted Reuben Carter a writ of habeas corpus, which is issued when a prisoner has been wrongly detained. The judge's decision, which freed Carter from prison, cited evidence withheld by the prosecution and a racially inflammatory argument to the jury. Prison is so difficult uh, for those who are guilty. It's inconceivable to me what it must be like for somebody who was innocent and knows that they don't belong there. Uh, So uh, I I can't imagine any worse miscarriage than incarcerating or in some instances even executing uh, somebody for a crime that they did not commit. What is your sense of how frequently an innocent person in the United States is convicted of a crime that they did not commit and why that occurs? Well, I have no idea, obviously, of the statistics, but um, my view is that it's not a matter of conviction. It isn't people who go to trial uh, and who are innocent and are convicted. I think what happens all too often is um, innocent people are convinced to enter pleas, uh, admit guilt where, where they may not be guilty, uh, 
to avoid the threat of a very long sentence. And I Effectively think happens, a deal with the prosecution. Exactly. And I think that happens much more frequently than innocent people going to trial and being convicted by a jury. So if there are a lot of people in prisons who are innocent, I, I think it's more as a result of the plea bargain system than as the result of any trials. For someone who has been wrongly convicted, how hard is it for them to get the wrongful conviction overturned? In other words, to what extent is the deck stacked against someone who is presumed guilty once they've been stained by the black mark of conviction? I think it's very difficult. Uh, I've seen statistics about the number of habeas petitions that are filed and the number that are granted, and it's some very, very minimal amount. Uh, and Reuben Carter's case is is typical, or maybe uh, atypical in the sense that he had two jury trials. Uh, so the, the uh, first was overturned by the New Jersey courts. First was overturned by the New Jersey courts because the key witness recanted uh, and then uh, did come back and repeat the same uh, so-called eyewitness testimony and Carter and Artis were convicted once again. But in answer to your question, uh, there is a tremendous reluctance. Uh, the prosecutors want to preserve their convictions um, the judges are reluctant to set aside the jury verdicts. Uh, so, yes, there is a tremendous inertia when it comes to disturbing uh, criminal convictions, and I think it's very rare that courts do so. And does that inertia constitute injustice? Uh, yes. I, I, I used to we, – we received hundreds – of habeas corpus petitions. And I remember saying to my law clerks, we must read, or you must read, because I always ask them to do the preliminary read, as this is the only case that we have. You can't uh, develop this view that they're all, they don't pre present uh, uh, legitimate claims and there's no basis for most of them because you can get caught up in that very easily because many of them do not have any merit at all. But I always used to say to my clerks, there'll, there'll be one in there even if it's one in a hundred, but you have to look at each one separately and not be influenced by the fact that a number of them have, uh, have no value and no merit. So given that context in which the vast majority are not accepted, what was going on in the mind of a judge, in your mind, that caused this particular petition to rise above that and allow you to see maybe a genuine injustice was committed here? Well, I have to say, David, that I treated uh, the Carter petition like I do uh, any others. Um, if, if my law clerks on a preliminary run-through, although I look at, at the petitions myself as well, uh, say to me that there may be some merit in it, then I give it a, a, a careful look. Uh, I remember coming home, uh, there was something in the papers that the case had been assigned to me, and my children immediately said, oh, you've got to listen to the Bob Dylan song. And I said, no, I can't do anything outside the record. I want to take a careful look. 
But this record was so huge, I, I can't remember, at least over 10,000 pages. I had to hire a, a new separate law clerk to work with me just on this case. It took us about three months to go through the files and draft the opinion and everything. Um, but uh, e- even though the case g- got a great deal of press and coverage, uh, I, to me, it was just another case. Now all the criminals in the coats and their ties are free to drink martinis and watch the sunrise while Ruben sits like Buddha in a ten-foot cell and in a But one time, he gonna be the champion of the world. The Hurricane by Bob Dylan. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, please visit our website, humanmedia.org. Since his release from prison, Reuben Carter founded two organizations to advocate for the wrongly convicted, including Innocence International, which he now directs from his home in Toronto. Another group, the Innocence Project, affiliated with the Cardozo School of Law in New York, held a public ceremony at which former prisoners who had been exonerated tore up cards bearing the inmate number they had been assigned in jail. My name is Christopher Conover. The state of Maryland imprisoned me for over 18 years for a crime I did not commit. They gave me the number, 176997. My name is Barry Gibbs. The state of New York imprisoned me for 19 years for a crime I didn't commit. They gave me my number, 888-3015. Today, I'm a free man. My name is Neil Miller. The Commonwealth of Massachusetts imprisoned me for 10 years for a crime I didn't commit. They gave me this number. W49628. Today I'm a free man. The reason someone goes to jail for a crime they didn't actually commit range from misidentification by witnesses to false confessions in plea bargains and misconduct or incompetence by lawyers and judges. Studies estimate that between 2 and 5 percent of people behind bars are innocent, amounting to many tens of thousands of prisoners. But as with all harshness in our world, there's a mystery here, a part of the story that defies easy understanding. Reuben Carter from his second memoir, Eye of the Hurricane. In a very real sense, going to prison was the best thing that ever happened to me. Without it, I might never have stopped long enough on my journey to find out who I was. I would have been a bald-headed, mean-looking ex-prize fighter talking through a screen of conditioning, spewing forth anger and bitterness. Nevertheless, prison is not an experience I would recommend to anyone else. Sacrificing your physical freedom is not a necessary step on the road to self-discovery. 
For Reuben Carter, false convictions occur not just in a court of law. They also arise in the human mind in the form of false beliefs harbored to some degree by all of us in our imperfect attempts to make sense of a confusing and at times very cruel world. Time in prison forced Reuben Carter to gain a perspective he might not have discovered elsewhere. It took me outside of the herd. It took me outside of ordinary society and ordinary people. And only by being outside of that circle of ideas and circle of behavior can you look back and see what you were doing while you were running with the herd. You were doing the same thing uh, with the herd that the herd is doing. You know, you were, you were not a nice person. You know, you beat people up. You know, and, and things of that nature. Was there not also a herd in prison, though? Not only was I isolated from the ordinary herd outside, but I was also isolated from the prison herd. So I could also see what's going on in the prison as well as I could see what's going on in the larger general prison out in society. So you were not making friends among the other inmates? Prison is a place where criminals are. I don't have any criminal friends, and I didn't try to seek any criminal friends. I was not guilty of a crime, and I was not going to be uh, affected by that prison if I could possibly help it. But of course, I was affected by it. You cannot not be affected by it. You wrote that the toughest boxer you ever had to face was Reuben Hurricane Carter, <laughs> yeah. yourself. Yeah, yeah. Anytime one begins on a journey of self-discovery, that person will find that his greatest enemy is himself, is him or herself. Uh, there is nothing outside of us that could be our enemy. It's, a, it's ourselves that are our enemy. It's our conditioning that we have been conditioned with on this earth from the moment that we were born. And yet, you are a person who was wrongly convicted under a system that held you against your will for two decades of your life. But you're saying that the enemy is not anyone external? Not external. It's all internal. I mean, everything, everything about life uh, is internal. You know, the thing about uh, our lives on this earth is that life is too hectic. Life is too busy. We are born into a family, into a country, into a society. And we begin to take on the, uh, the, the likes and dislikes of our parents, of our siblings, of our school, of our society. And that is what uh, imprisons us because it's not really us. These are all reactions. And all these reactions create this false persona in us called personality. We inherit these tribal conditions. These things are imposed upon us. I mean, the likes and dislikes of our parents are imposed upon us by our parents. Or the likes and dislikes of our siblings or of our school friends. These things are imposed upon us, and we are always reacting to these things. And that's what personality, that's what 
creates personalities, reaction. You know, while essence, the essence of us, of a human being, the essence of us is from a different level of life than the level in which we were born into. And that's what makes us miraculous beings. If we can get back to that level, there's nothing that we cannot do. But most, most of us spend most of our time identifying with the personality. That personality exactly. is me. That's, exactly. that's the thought most of us have. Exactly. I, I, am, I am that image. Exactly. I am the one with that reputation, yeah, exactly. pro or con. That's how most of us walk around. That's the way we walk around. We, and everybody has a personality. Everybody. I mean, there's mothers, there's fathers, brothers, sisters. All of those are personalities. They're not real. They're doctors and lawyers. The thing that we don't know and don't understand on this level of life, David, is the levels that exist in the universe. Now, when you were sitting in prison in New Jersey and you started to become aware of the multi-leveled universe and the fact that there's a difference between the personality we develop and our original essence, what was your pathway for trying to grow closer to realizing that essence? Well, you see, I've always been a very voracious reader. You know, as a youngster, because I had that speech impediment for 18 years, I read a lot. You were a stutterer. I was a stutterer. I mean, a horrible stutterer. I stuttered every word, you know. So I was more inverted. And so I read a great deal, and I loved cowboy books. Louis Lamar, I mean, he was able to really keep a story fresh with powerful metaphor and, and things like that, you know. So, so I read a lot. And that helped me in life because I'm also a loner, you know. And uh, in prison, I was able to read. And I would find books like Nietzsche, uh, Socrates, uh, Plato. Uh, I would find these books, and I would hear what they're saying, and I like what they were saying. And so I would try to follow that thread. I would try to find out what that person read, you know, what that person studied in order to get to where that person was, you know. And, and this thread began to lead me to a, a certain way, uh, thinking in a certain different way than I would ordinarily think, you know what I mean? I, I'll get to a, a Frankel, you know, a, a, a man's search for meaning. You know, coming from a concentration camp. Victor Frankl, who died in 1997, was an Austrian physician and a Jew who spent two and a half years imprisoned at Auschwitz and other Nazi concentration camps where his wife and parents perished. He was a psychiatrist who later wrote and lectured about the human capacity to find true meaning even in horrible circumstances. Said Frankel, if a prisoner felt that he could no longer endure the realities of camp life, he found a way out in his mental life, an invaluable opportunity to dwell in the spiritual domain, the one that the SS were unable to destroy. He once spoke with me at his home in Vienna. Having stood at the ramp of the railway station of Auschwitz in 44, and 
still having been granted several decades of life and an opportunity to work and to do something, such a person, you will understand, is again and again asking himself whether he has been uh, uh, worthy of this grace to survive, to survive for so many years. And he can only become worthy by using each moment from that time on, each moment at the best of his conscience. That grabbed me. Reuben Carter. That grabbed me because I said, well, if he can survive in a concentration camp under those circumstances and yet be free, you know, and not, not, not be full of hate, I could do that. I could do that because the hate only uh, hurt me because the hate had turned me into a monster. I also became aware of a merciful creator. The creator, the absolute as I call it, had placed me in this depraved place for a reason. I then extended this reality to everybody, both those inside and those outside the prison walls. Without consciousness, we are all in maximum security lockdown, doomed by genetics to play out our mechanical roles until the day we die. Mercy itself lies in the fact that as individuals, we can escape the confines of this maximum security prison, that we have been given all of the necessary tools to accomplish this task. I realized that even the people I hated, those who had put me in jail, must also have this divine spark in them. I also had to admit for the first time that I was not blameless. The acts I had committed, the words I had said, the attitude I carried resulted in my being in this place and in this cell. As a former boxer, Reuben Carter had used violence professionally and also outside of the ring at earlier angry times in his life. But he has been exonerated of the murder charge, a decision affirmed by the U.S. Supreme Court. When the hurricane raging around Reuben Carter finally dissipated, he was liberated from prison and freed of something else as well. I looked into the mirror again and began to understand that the bald-headed, mean-looking ex-prize fighter who hated everybody, who was conditioned to hate everybody, including himself, was not the real Reuben Carter. The face I saw was no more real than a Halloween mask. Now, for the first time in my life, I began to love the man I saw in the mirror. I no longer had to wear the mask. A new life for me was possible, but only if I dared to continue down this road to change.
You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart and Jane Pippick. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to KPBS San Diego, to Bob Dylan, Sony Music, and Tony Buck. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston. Program development provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, part two of Reuben Carter's Hurricane, is Humankind Program number 167. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review at Apple Podcasts or another podcast service. It goes a long way in helping people find the Humankind series. And you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook or check out our YouTube channel for full episodes of the podcast. Again, the title is Humankind on Public Radio. Finally, if you'd like to support this podcast, please go to humankindpodcast.org and choose how you can help at the top of our homepage. That's humankindpodcast.org. Thanks.